Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 28. We're going to be concluding the book today. Alright, now, I titled this that the conclusion is not the end. That's the title of the sermon. Because it really is a, an anticlimactic ending to the book. I mean, it just kind of leaves off in somewhat obscurity and there's not really a, a big bang at the end. And I would say in large part that's because the story still continues until today, until this very hour. So the, the book kind of leaves off where Paul was at at that point in church history and he was just on house arrest in Rome and we'll talk about that when we get there. But that's kind of it. But the thing is, Acts still continues on to this very day. God is still moving. Jesus is still building His church. The Holy Spirit is still filling hearts and lives and pointing people to Christ and teaching and convicting it continues on. Churches are still being born. Churches are still growing in the name of Jesus. And so the first 30 years of that are recorded for us in the book of Acts, which are a wonderful gift to the church, but it continues on to the very present. And so that's why I titled this, The Conclusion is Not the End. But we're going to be looking at the, the last little period of Paul's life here, and uh, we'll make some good points and applications along the way. Allow me to uh, pray for us. Father, we worship You and we are grateful for Your Word. We are so grateful for the book of Acts and the blessing that it has been to me and to all of us over these uh, several months, God, that we've been working our way through it. And now the, the book closes today in a sense. The story here it is concluded, but we know it continues on, God, and we thank You for the work that You're doing in our hearts in our families, in our lives, in our church today. And so, Father, I'm asking for a fresh move of Your Spirit today. As we have already begun the service by fellowshipping and praising Your name and singing, God, to You. And Lord, You are here. You inhabit the, throne, uh, the praises of Your people. You're enthroned upon the praises of Your people. Now, God, as we come before Your Word, Lord, be honored in this place. God, be glorified. And we pray that You would please speak to us, God. Speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name, Amen. amen. Alright, well as you uh, remember from last week, they finally made it to this little island where they were shipwrecked. Paul and the prisoners and the crew, they were on this imperial wheat vessel. Paul was coming to Rome to be uh, sent to trial before Caesar. And Jesus had told him that he was going to go and that he was going to testify of Christ there in that place. And so they go off, they set sail, and it pretty much starts going bad right away. And it goes from bad to worse, and it just keeps getting more and more worse as the story goes on. And so finally, you'll recall last week, it ended in shipwreck. And even the ship hit some sort of a sand barge there and the waves were still crashing on it and it just tore into pieces. So they, they finally made it ashore by floating on planks from the ship and swimming, those who could swim. 
And I talked a little bit about how a lot of Christians may end up in heaven like that. we got nothing to show. We're saved and we're there by the grace of God, but we really haven't done anything for Christ in this world and we really have nothing to present to Him or to show for our time here as Christians. And that was, you know, I think a a powerful word for myself and for, for many of us. And so now we move on. Verse 1, chapter 28. Now when they had escaped, they then found out that the island was called Malta. And the natives showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and made us all welcome because of the rain that was falling and because of the cold. So this was a place of, uh, where sailors would regularly sail to. There was a, a very popular port there of entry, but they came in on what appears to be the backside of the island, and they really had no clue where they were initially. But they come to realize they were actually on Malta. And the natives there showed them unusual kindness. Now, we don't really know um, what the, who these peoples were exactly or what they were like. Um, the word for natives is barbaroi from which we get the word barbarian, right? But that doesn't necessarily mean anything because anyone who wasn't a Greek speaker would oftentimes be referred to as that. And it's, the idea was barbar. That's what it sounds like when they talk. We can't understand. And they had a really high view of, of um, Grecian culture and the Greek language. And anyone who was outside of that might as well have been a barbarian. So that was kind of the idea. Um, but nonetheless, these people were very kind. They showed great kindness to Paul and the ship. And we're told there was something like 265 people. This was a massive ship. And it could have easily held that many people. But they all made it to shore by the grace of God. And the natives there showed them great kindness. They kindled a fire for them and made them feel welcome because it was cold and it was raining. And that's, that's the language that Luke uses here. And I thought, this is just a very simple and practical lesson for us. They met a need, a very legitimate, real need, but it was as simple as building a fire for them, and that made them feel welcome because they had that need. They were cold. They were shipwrecked. It was raining out there, and the natives took them in and blessed them. And I thought, that's just a very simple, practical lesson for us all because we are servants of Christ, and we've been commissioned by Him to love and to serve other people. And I think sometimes we think it has to be this grandiose venture or we don't do it at all. And I've noticed a lot of people, when they say that God has given them a certain ministry or called them to do something, so often it seems to be this really grand thing and it never really seems to happen. And I think that uh, it's rare that you find someone say, you know, God gave me the ministry of changing the trash cans out or, or you know, things like that. But... Honestly, it just comes in meeting simple, practical needs. And people feel loved. People feel loved when you care for them, when they know that you care. And, um, and really, this is a love language. You know, Some people, that really ministers to them, uh, meeting practical needs. And, and you'll find that those people often do that very thing. And that's important. So for us as Christians especially, our Lord as the example, the one who washed His disciples' feet, and he said, if I'm willing to do this for you, this, this simple, practical act of service and kindness, how much more should you be doing it for each other? And so, I, honestly, you know, I like to ask the question, are we? Are we looking for opportunities to bless other people in, in the simple things? In the simple little things. That's what we see happening here. And they, were, they felt cared for and, and welcomed because of it. And we want to be that kind of a church. Amen?
We want people to come in and to be blessed, to be served, to be cared for on, on many different levels. And so I would encourage you, pray and ask the Lord to give you eyes to see needs, to give you a heart that cares to meet those kinds of needs, to give you the ability to address different kinds of needs, whatever it may be that God's calling you to. But we want to be like, like this. This is a great example. And also now just to get a little you know, more spiritual here on you with it, uh, I see a picture here of us and Christ in the sense that we're, we're just shipwrecked. We, we just make it to the shore with nothing but the clothes on our back. we got nothing to give, nothing to bring to the table. We're just busted up, as I like to say. And the Lord has showed us unusual kindness, has He not? He has blessed us immensely, first and foremost, by saving us, by saving a wretch like me, by giving His life, the just for the unjust, so that I could have life eternal. But then He continues to serve and to, to care for me and to provide and to meet my needs and to, to teach me and to grow me as I move along on this, this path. And so uh, our Lord is very kind, so very kind, and we ought to model that kindness. Well, things started out good for Paul, but we know how it goes for him so often. So verse 3, But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on a fire, a viper came out because of the heat, and fastened on his hand. So when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer, whom though he has escaped the sea, yet justice does not allow him to live. So Paul's just out here serving folks. You know, the great and mighty Apostle Paul is out here picking up sticks to try to help contribute to this whole thing and to provide fire and warmth for all of the people because there were a lot of people. They would have needed a lot of little fires, I imagine. And Paul is out doing that very thing. So he's, he's a great example to us even in that. But then, next thing you know, he is bitten by a snake, as random as that, that seems, right? With it being cold and wet, I'm sure that the, the snake would have been in somewhat of a dormant state. Uh, but with Paul jostling around and picking up sticks and then the, the heat of the fire, evidently the snake was roused and it struck and it bit him on the hand. Now, the natives saw this and their first thought was, okay, this guy is a murderer. He's a murderer and he escaped the sea. He escaped, escaped the treachery of the sea, but justice has seen fit not to let him escape. Now, when we hear the word justice, you know, the, the idea that comes into our mind when we say justice is served, but in the language here, it seems that they're actually referring to a Greek goddess. And a couple of different names have been given for this goddess, and they sound kind of weird, so I'm not even going to try to repeat it. But they appear to be uh, referring to this goddess of of justice or retribution and they're saying clearly that's what has happened this guy thought he escaped he's a criminal who did wrong and justice was not going to let this slide and this was already somewhat of a uh, this supposedly had happened before and there was a guy by the name of Statilius Flaccus who wrote an epitaph and he talked about this very thing someone who had escaped the murderous sea but then was stricken on the shore by a snake and so that may that very thing may have been conjured up in their mind as they saw this happen but what's fascinating to me is that what is ingrained in them was justice the sense of justice that something wrong had been done 
And there was retribution. It was made right. This person deserved justice and they got it. That's in the hearts of men and women. Where does that come from? You know, because the reality is, guys, if, if, we, if we just came from a puddle of ooze billions and billions of years ago, where does that come from? If it really is the survival of the fittest, the stronger eats the weakest and thus continues on, if it is really random chance, then where does this internal law come from if there's not a transcendent law giver who gave it to His people and has planted it within our hearts? Who's to say what's right and wrong? If, if it's the strong eats the weak and the survival of the fittest, well, what's right for me is my law and what's right for you is your law and you don't have any right to tell me maybe murder is just okay in my book. What's wrong with that? Who has the right to say otherwise if that is the case? But because there is a God who has created us and all things and He is the lawgiver and He has put eternity in our hearts, He has written His law upon our hearts, and that is within us. We must understand that is where it comes from. And we are accountable to that God. And we'll talk about that next week in Romans because Romans chapter 1 hits on that very thing. So that's where we're going next. And so we have to recognize that there is an eternal God who sets the standard of right and wrong. And He has put that in our hearts. And when we, when we go against that, we know that we have, a, we have violated that which is right. And it's interesting to see that even these native pagan worshipers understood that. Well, verse 5, But He shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. However, they were expecting that He would swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had looked for a long time and saw no harm come to Him, they changed their minds and said that He was a God. So it's kind of a radical shift from one end of the spectrum to the other. And it sounds like Paul didn't even panic here. And I wouldn't be surprised if he didn't because this guy's resume of suffering is incredible. And by this point, for him to get bit, I'm sure he was like, you've got to be kidding me. And then he just shakes it off. He certainly didn't have any adverse reactions here. He didn't swell up. He didn't die. And, you know, I think about that and I think you know what God didn't bring him that far just to let him die from a snake bite see man looks at that and thinks okay he's survived this but surely now it's over for him but that's the natural man but we who believe in God and, and God as in control say God didn't bring me this far to let me down now God didn't call me into this thing and bring me this far to show up and be unfaithful or to let me falter or fail and Paul, called, uh, Paul was called by God through all of that adversity, through all of those trials, and even through that very storm. And here he is. And still, God's promise stood. He had a place he had to be. And Jesus told him that. You're going to go somewhere and you're going to minister on my behalf and you're going to be a witness to my name. And nothing's going to stop that. Not some storm on the sea and not some puny little snake. Nothing is going to stop that. And let that be... A word of encouragement to us all, just like that song that we sang earlier. God's promise still stands. His faithfulness is great. He cannot, he cannot deny Himself. He is who He is. He is totally faithful, always. And we can have confidence in a good God. Amen? A trustworthy and a faithful and a righteous God. A loving and a merciful God. And Paul had that confidence. 
And as I look at the people's response here, first they're like, okay, this guy was a murderer. And they're like, oh no, he's a god, actually, turns out. And so I think two things, really, as I, I consider the wavering perspectives of, of men. People can be fickle like that. And that's why it's important for us to not get too enraptured upon the praises of people. Because some of us can really be given to that. Oh, we love a good pat on the back. We love it when people cheer for us. We love it when people are in our corner. But then we can crash when the opposite happens. So, you know, we're, we're sailing high on the waves of people's praises and then we crash on the rocks of their criticism. Right? And so we've got to be careful for that because that's how people can be. And we can be like that. We can be the person who one minute we're like, man, that, that guy or that girl, man, they are something else, man. That is awesome. And we're singing their praises. And then we get disappointed. And the next thing you know, oh, I knew better than that. I knew that was, nah, yeah. And you start criticizing. And we have to be careful not to do that. Uh, you know, I think um, athletes know this better than anybody. They're only as good as their last win, Right? And that's just the case in so many different things. And so, um, you know, you take a lesson from that as you watch people in that very thing, and I think it's a good lesson for us all because, hey, I think that a lot of us in here care about what people think about us, don't we? If we were really honest. We really let that drive us so often, people's perception of us and how they feel about us. There's only really one that matters, and that is God's. And God looks upon you as lovely. You are His in Christ. He saved you. He's made you new. And He is pleased with you here today. And He has a plan for your life. And that's a wonderful thing. That doesn't change. God is constant. He doesn't waver. Isn't that a wonderful reality? And so we have that in God. That is the, such, such an opposite situation from man to God. Well... Verse 7 here, it says, In that region there was an estate of the leading citizen of the island whose name was Publius, who received us and entertained us courteously for three days. And it happened that the father of Publius lay sick on a, of a fever and dysentery. And Paul went into him and prayed, and he laid his hands on him and healed him. So when this was done, the rest of those on the island who had diseases also came and were healed. And they also honored us in many ways, and when we departed, they provided such things as were necessary. So this leading citizen here, this is actually a very specific uh, title that Luke is using here in the language. So he's most likely a governor of some sort put there by Rome. So he's a Roman official, a governor of Malta, and he hears about Paul and he hosts Paul and shows him kindness just as the natives did and entertains him and is most likely Paul's you know, closest circle there for a few days. And we're told that his father, Publius' father, has some sort of a fever and dysentery. All the commentaries seem to agree that this is something called the Malta fever and it comes from a, a microbe in goat milk. And it can last for months. It's a really terrible uh, disease. And so Paul comes in and prays for and lays hands on this guy. And, uh, and he was healed. This is the only time in Scripture where you see prayer and laying on of hands happening simultaneously. 
You often hear people being prayed for. You often hear of people having hands laid on them, but this time it comes together. And I think that's a beautiful picture. And we do that for each other oftentimes. We will lay hands on other people and pray God's blessing over them and pray for healing. And we've been told to do that very thing. And so we have a scriptural precedent for that. And I just see, I see God's heart here sending Paul and Paul putting his hands on him because, you know, that's how Jesus is. He identifies with his people. He's not like the Pharisees who didn't want to touch the people. They did everything in their power to, to keep distance between themselves and the average Joe, lest they become defiled. And Jesus was not that way. And his followers are not that way. We want to embrace folks, love people, lay hands on them, and pray God's blessing over them. And Paul did that very thing. And what's interesting here is it said that many people came from the island and, and were healed after that. But it's, it's different language than normal for healing. And some have suggested that what, what happened after that wasn't so much miraculous, that Luke is actually a, a doctor. And we're told that in Colossians, that Luke, the, the beloved physician, and some have said that this could have been somewhat of a, a missionary type of experience where Paul was preaching the gospel and he was there ministering. Uh, to the people and Luke was there as the physician, as the doctor caring for physical practical needs. I mean, we don't know that, but it's an interesting thing to consider because that's a very common practice in, 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 uh, modern church, uh, in, moder in the modern church as we go around on missions trips and things of that sort. So it's kind of an interesting thing to, to consider there if indeed that was the case. Well, moving on. Verse 11, now they're going to sail from Malta and they're going to make their way to Rome. So after three months, we sailed in an Alexandrian ship whose figurehead was the twin brothers, which had wintered at the island. And landing at Syracuse, we stayed three days. And from there, we circled round and reached Regium. And after one day, the south wind blew, and the next day we came to Patoli where we found brethren and were invited to stay with them seven days. And so we went toward Rome, and from there, when the brethren heard about us, they came to meet us as far as Appi Forum and three ends. When Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. So as I had mentioned last week, there was that particular time of the year when sailing really ceased in that, in that, in that area. And because that was the storm that they got sucked into, that northeaster, that was very typical. So once they made it to Malta, they stayed for a few months. So this could be around mid-February now when they're setting sail on to Rome. And they're on another Alexandrian ship. So this is another ship like the one that just wrecked. And so again, it's probably an imperial uh, wheat vessel that they're going off on. And for whatever reason, Luke saw fit to mention that they sailed under the figurehead of the twin brothers. And what he's talking about here, I'll just read a quote to you from Warren Wearsby. It says that in Greek mythology, Castor and Pollux were the names of the twin sons of Zeus and were revered as the protectors of men on the sea. And many Roman ships bore their image as a plea for safety. So these twin gods, these sons of Zeus, it would have been their likeness or their bust on the very front of the ship, the part of the ship that basically cuts the water as it's sailing forward. They would have that there, and these gods were considered protectors of sailors on the sea. And uh, it's, it's an interesting little note there. For whatever reason, uh, Luke put that there. 
But we're told that now they're going from Malta to Syracuse to Regium to Apiforums and Three Ends in Rome. So they're making basically a beeline straight up from Malta into Italy and then up to Rome. So once they get from Malta to Syracuse, now they're in Italy. Okay, And so they're at the, the very bottom, the boot tip of Italy, and each town they're kind of making their way farther and farther up until they are in Rome. And they see these believers there and they thank God. Paul thanks God for them. Now I just wanted to do me a favor. Flip over to Romans chapter 16. Now I don't think it's a far stretch at all to assume or speculate that these Christians that Paul is getting ready to run into are the recipients of this letter to the Romans. Paul has already written this letter years earlier. He's never been to Rome, though. And so he sends this letter to the church in Rome, and in the end of it, he has this wonderful list of people that he names and that he, he greets. And so I just want to read through this very quickly, uh, and I'm going to read verse, verses 3 to 16, and then I'll explain why. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Apennatus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known as the apostles, uh, excuse me, they are well known to the apostles and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. How would you like that as a couple, a name for a couple? Greet the beloved Persis who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Also his mother who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philogus, Julia, Nerus, how do you say that? His sister, Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. That's a hard list of names. I did that to myself. Most people try to stay away from those. But uh, the reason why I did that is because now when Paul wrote this letter to Rome, he had not even been there. He didn't start the church there, but look at all the people that he knew there and how intimately he knew them. And now years later, he shows up and he's right outside of Rome and maybe he's in Rome now and at least uh, somewhere nearby at these towns called Three Ends and Appy Forum and all of these Christians come to, to see him there. And he is overcome he is encouraged to the, to the core and he thanks God for them. Now, I talked about this last week, how special Christian fellowship is and what a gift you are to me, what a gift we are to each other. And if you don't know that by now, then something is missing. You're not really plugged in as you ought to be. 
And you're missing out. And I did that to myself for years. The first five years of my Christian walk, I was a straight-up church hopper because where I'm from, they had a church on every corner and I just would go from place to place to place and never could find the perfect church. Could you imagine that? So many choices and I couldn't find the perfect church. I mean, I just was so frustrated by that. And so uh, on and on I went and never realizing the disservice I was doing to myself by not really plugging in not really getting to know the body, not allowing myself to be known, and having that accountability, those relationships, the ministry that happens, the body ministry that takes place, I deprived myself of all of that. And so I, for one, understand very well now the blessing that it is, and I want that for you guys. And I know that there are many in this room who do enjoy that with us. But I would ask you a question. It's fascinating to me that Paul had never been to, to Rome at this point. He certainly had not been to any of the churches, and he knew all of these people. He came all the way from Asia. He came all the way from Assyria over there, uh, right below Asia Minor, through Asia Minor, up into to Macedonia, and then as far over now as Italy. And I would ask you, can you name this many people in this church? Can you name that many people in your own church? That is impressive to me that Paul knows these many people. And he's not just naming a list of names. He knows these people. He knows them well. He has things that he can say about them. And he's never even been there. Imagine that. Can we name this many people in our own church? And that is a challenge that I, I issue to you. And I would encourage you, if you don't know other people, if you don't have relationships, if you don't have brothers and sisters, if this is not your family, dig in. Now's the time. Start praying that the Lord would help you to do that. Because it can be scary, right? It's scary to come into a new place. And that's why I try to tell people like the, 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 the regular Joes in our church, you know, sometimes it's hard to engage new people when they come in, right? It's hard to go up and start a conversation with somebody you don't know. So often, most of us aren't, aren't that outgoing. But I'll tell you what, it's infinitely harder for the person who's coming in for the first time. And so we've already got an advantage on them in that respect. So we should really be take that seriously when folks come in, new folks loving on them, encouraging them, getting to know them. And if you've been here for any length of time, I hope that you're really plugging in, getting into a small group, uh, coming to church regularly, being a part of the little extra things that we do outside of the church. And it's such a wonderful part of what Christ has given us as the church. And I certainly want, wouldn't want any of us to miss out on that. All right, you can go back over to Acts now. Acts chapter 28, verse 16. Now when we came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard, but Paul was permitted to dwell by himself with the soldier who guarded him. So Paul finally made it. Here they are. They're in Rome. Jesus told them that he would get there, and they made it. And now this would have been a great moment for the centurion here, Julius. This has been a very, very hard trip, and he had a very serious responsibility placed on him by Rome. And he was not to lose any of these passengers, any of the, the prisoners. And by, with Paul's help, he didn't. That, that was a, a huge job, and it was accomplished. So here he is, job well done. It just kind of skips over that. But this would have been a huge, huge deal. 
And once again, he shows Paul great kindness. So Paul's not with the rest of the prisoners at this point. He's allowed to stay by himself with another soldier. And so now verse 17, it says, And it came to pass after three days that Paul called the leaders of the Jews together. So when they had come together, he said to them, Men and brethren, though I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans, who when they had examined me wanted to let me go, because there was no cause for putting me to death. But when the Jews spoke against it, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, not that I had anything of which to accuse my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have called for you to see you and to speak with you, because for the hope of Israel I am bound with this chain. So now Paul is here. He's in Rome. He's settled in for a few days. And he's called together the Jewish leaders for what is his sixth public defense and we've been tracking those all the way I believe from chapter 21 and on from the time that he was apprehended he began to give all of these different defenses everywhere that he went and this is his sixth and final defense recorded here in Acts and he he calls all the Jews together and he reiterates for them his side of the story very much in a nutshell here of what took place and he explains that he was ultimately innocent that he had not transgressed God or broken any of the laws or blasting the temple or caused any uproars or any of the things that had been uh, brought against him. And Paul says, you know, my real crime is the hope of Israel. That's why I'm in chains. And what he's essentially saying here, his belief in the Messiah. My hope, my trust, my belief in the Messiah of Israel is why I stand before you today chained. Because Paul believed that Jesus was the Christ. Now all of Israel awaited the Messiah. They knew that there was one whom God would send who would redeem the people. And it seemed they had a real misunderstanding of who the Messiah was and what he was about. But Paul had found the Messiah in Christ. And he was willing to go to prison for that. He was willing to die for that. And he said, this is why I stand before you today chained because of the hope of Israel. The hope that I have found in Christ. And so here their response to that, verse 21. Then they said to him, we neither have received letters from Judea concerning you, nor any of the brethren who came uh, reported or spoke, have spoken any evil of you. But we desire to hear from you what you think, for concerning this sect, we know that it is spoken against everywhere. So surprisingly, after all of the trips, all of the travel, all of the hearings, everything that Paul went through, he gets to Rome and they don't even know who he is. They don't know anything about anything that has transpired up to this point. And this is really just... Uh, strong evidence that the Jews knew they didn't have a case. They knew that they didn't have anything that they could really bring against Paul, and so they just gave up. And so here he is, and it's commendable to me that the Jews said, you know, regarding this this sect of the Nazarenes, or the way as it is so often uh, referred to, they wanted to hear about it. They knew that it was spoken against everywhere, but they wanted to know. They wanted to hear, and that to me was quite commendable. And so they give Paul a day. They give him an entire day to, to speak to them concerning these things. So, verse 23, So when they had appointed him a day, 
many came to him at his lodging to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning till evening. And some were persuaded by the things which were spoken and some disbelieved. So as I said, Paul was given a day and he spent the whole day testifying of Christ and the kingdom of God. You know, when we talk about the kingdom of God, what exactly does that mean? Well, it means this, God is the king and we are his loyal subjects. We are his, we are his children, we are his followers and his kingdom is here and now because his worshipers are here. And we want to know the King and obey and serve the King. We are His loyal subjects. Does that make sense? And so this was a very new and radical idea when it came to Christianity and how people related to God as Father and King. And His kingdom is here on earth and God is at hand. And He's calling on everyone everywhere to repent to turn from their old ways, to turn from their rebelliousness, to turn from their their wickedness and to turn to Him and to love Him and to recognize Him as the Lord, as King, and to bow the knee to Him. And that is entrance into the kingdom. And many of us know that so very well. And so Paul preached that very thing. And he also preached to them how Christ was all in the Old Testament. All throughout the Old Testament, the the Old Testament bore Jesus to Christ, or excuse me, bore witness to Jesus Christ. And that's it's a really awesome thing to study the Old Testament. And there are times when we believe that Jesus actually appeared in the Old Testament. We would call that a Christophany or a, a theophany. It's an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. And there are certainly so many prophecies in the Old Testament that talk about Christ who was to come. And uh, there are so many different things, typologies and pictures of Christ. You can see the spiritual parallels of how Christ fulfilled that very thing. And that's what the Scriptures are about. Let me, seriously guys, this is important. I want you to get this. The Bible is about Jesus. You get that, right? It's not so much about us. Now, it certainly is relevant to us, and it's very important to us, and it has a lot of things to say to us, but ultimately, the Bible is about Him. And we live in a day and an age where we make the Bible all about us. There's a word called exegesis. It's a, this is a technical term, and that's for a real in-depth, literal, uh, technical study of the Scriptures. What does it say? What does it mean? And it's historical, geographical, Literary context, right? That's exegesis. Well, there's a new term now called narcissus, And that's where it's all about me. All of that other stuff, throw that out because who's it about? It's about me. And so we got David and Goliath. That's a key example right here. So I'm David, of course. You know, I'm the hero of the story. And Goliath is my problem, whatever that may be. Maybe he's my boss or my failing marriage or my bills. And I'm going to step back and I'm going to swing that stone of faith at my Goliath and I'm going to kill that giant. And I'm the victor, right? I am the champion of the story. And that is not a good way of reading the Bible. We don't want to read ourselves into it like that. Quite frankly, if we're going to read anyone into that story, Jesus is the conqueror. 
What, what greater giant could there be than sin and death? And Jesus is the greater David who came and defeated sin and death on our behalf. If we're anyone in that story, who are we? We're the Israelites over there shaking in our boots because we're scared to death. And we didn't do anything. We didn't bring anything to the table. But Jesus came in and conquered death on our behalf. And now the victory is ours in Christ. Amen? And so that, that's really how we want to approach the Scriptures. And that's what Paul was doing. He was demonstrating to the Jews there that Christ is the point. Now, not all of the content of the Old Testament is about Christ, but it all points to Him. There's that scarlet thread that goes through the Bible. You know, the Bible is amazing. Over, I believe, 1,600 different years, you have uh, 60 different um, authors. And, um, gosh, I'm, I'm forgetting my, my math here, but you have all of these different books that came together on three different continents, over 40 authors, 66 books, over 40 authors, over 1,600 years on three different continents, and you've got kings, priests, slaves, shepherds, all of these different authors, and it all comes together, and it's all about Christ. It's so cohesive from beginning to end. It's such a supernatural, miraculous story, a supernatural book that has been delivered to us, and it all testifies to Christ. And that's what Paul was demonstrating to the Jews here. And some were persuaded concerning Jesus. And some disbelieved. And that is just the case, always. There will be those who believe and those who do not. Now this was the Apostle Paul in their presence preaching Christ and they just didn't get it. They just walked away from it. They rejected it altogether. So this is what Paul says to them about that. Verse 25. So when they did not agree among themselves, they departed after Paul had said one word. The Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophet to our father, saying, Go to this people and say, Hearing you will hear, and you shall not understand. And seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles and they will hear it. This is a stinging indictment from Isaiah chapter 6. What's interesting, I think a lot of us in here know the story. Remember when God said, Who, who shall I send? Chapter 6. And then there that classic statement, Isaiah said, Here I am, send me. Well, this was the message that Isaiah was sent with there. Isaiah chapter 6, 9 and 10. And it's though you go and though you speak, people will hear you, but they won't. They won't really get it. They'll see you, but they really won't perceive it. And their hearts are cold and their hearts are hardened. And if they would receive it, I would come and I would heal them, but they will not. And so that started with Isaiah and Jesus quoted that same text to the Pharisees and Matthew. And now Paul is quoting the same thing to the Jews here in Rome. Their eyes are blind, their ears are deaf, and their heart is hard, and they refuse to accept it. So Paul is going to take the message elsewhere. And that's what he's saying. And so there's some very important lessons that come out here. It's a very dangerous thing to be blind and deaf spiritually. It's a very dangerous thing to have a, a hard heart, a cold heart. 
Especially when God says, if you would turn to me, I would heal you. I would give you sight. I would restore your hearing. I would give you a new heart. A new heart that is tender and responsive to God. If you would yet believe. And they would not. And so God said, I'm going to go elsewhere. That is one of the scariest things that can possibly happen to anyone. You know, for the person who's never put their trust in God. You know, and, and you may not even be willing to admit that you need healing. You may not even be willing to admit that there is a God and that you need Him. Your heart is hardened to Him. But if you would, humble yourself and confess that God is real and true and that you need Him, He will heal your life. He will give you a new heart. He will give you eternal life. Because the Bible clearly teaches that we are separated from God outside of Christ. We are dead in our trespass and sins. We have all fallen short and we know this. We know that we have all sinned against God. It is written in our hearts. We know deep down inside that there's more than this. That there is an eternity and that there is a transcendent lawgiver and that we have transgressed His law and that we're going to have to stand and give account for that one day. That is the bad news for all of humanity. But the good news is, is that if we would turn, if we would confess God, I believe that You are who You say You are, and I believe that I am who You say I am, that I am a sinner, and that I have fallen short of Your glory. God, will You forgive me? Then because of what Jesus did on the cross, Jesus took our place on the cross. The death that we deserved, Jesus took it upon Himself. The price that we owed, Jesus paid it on the cross. If we would put our trust in Him for salvation and confess God and cry out to Him, He would bring that healing. But some in this room today will not. You will reject that. And that is tragic because God doesn't desire that any would perish. He does not delight in the death of the wicked. He would that all would turn and come to Him. And the invitation is there. The invitation is freely given. And you know, the worst judgment that can happen is when God lets us go our own way. Did you know that? I mean, people look at earthquakes and hurricanes and, you know, the, the 9-11 buildings and things like that, and I don't want to minimize those things, and they say that's God's judgment. I, you know, I don't think so. I think when God's judgment comes down, it's going to be a lot worse than a couple of buildings or an earthquake somewhere. But worse than that is when God gives us over and just lets us have our way. And that is, a, that is a warning for anyone in this room. If God is calling you and He's drawing you, don't reject that. Give yourself to Him. Today is the day. Because Paul said here, you wouldn't have it, so I'm taking it elsewhere. And that is the worst form of judgment anyone could undergo is for God to say, okay, that's it. You had your chance. I reached out to you. You rejected it. I'm going elsewhere. Let that not be said of any of us in this room. Alright, well, closing up here, verse 29. And when he had said these words, the Jews departed and had a great dispute among themselves. Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. And so the Jews departed, kind of arguing amongst themselves, but they didn't seem to take it out on Paul, which was unusual. 
And so we know that Paul spent two more years here in house arrest. He was able to work and have visitors come. He was able to preach the gospel. We know that he ministered to the guards that he was chained to quite a bit. We're told that in Philippians uh, 1 uh, verse 12. And during this time, Paul writes Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon during this two-year imprisonment here. So God uses that time totally. We do believe, and we don't know this, it's not explicitly recorded in the Scriptures, but we believe Paul was released after two years that he may have traveled as far as Spain. Um, Clement, an early church father and Eusebius, an early church historian, talk about that very thing. And so he went on another trip, basically, and then was arrested again and um, went back and was this time in very harsh conditions. He was in a dungeon and he was awaiting his death and he knew it. And he wrote Second Timothy at that point and he was saying, you know, this is it. I've ran my race. My life is being poured out as a drink offering here. And Paul knew. And then according to tradition, he was executed sometime after that. He was beheaded under Caesar Nero. And this was all just a few years from this point. A lot happens in the next few years after the closing of this book. A whole lot, historically. But you know, the book ends here with not much of a bang, as I said. And that's because, and I will close the same way that I opened, the story continues today. The story continues on. There's a church planting organization known as Acts 29. Because they would say, you know what, we're just the next chapter continues on. And so, and we are that. Isn't that amazing to think we see the birth of this nearly 2,000 years ago? It's recorded for us historically, and here we sit. Have you ever connected those dots? Is that amazing to you? It amazes me. Uh, we are the proof of the truth here. And the, the resurrection, the Holy Spirit, the church being born, the apostles going out and planting churches, and here we are. We're a byproduct of this story. And that's amazing to think, and the story doesn't end here. Amen? It ain't over yet. All right, let's pray. Father, we love You. We thank You, God, that we get to be in Your story. And we thank You, Lord, that it's not over. God, and we ask that You would use us, Father, for Your glory. That You would continue to build Your church. God, that You would bless Your people and that You would bless Napa through Your people. And so, Lord, we're glad to be a part of the next chapter here. And it's all for Your glory, God, and we're excited about what is to come. And we thank You in Jesus' name. Amen.